All right, well, they're going to go out. They're not going to practice on today. I think today they get a story. In the last couple of weeks at different times they've been practicing, and they're looking good, ain't they? That was wonderful. Yeah. All right, I, I failed to mention during the prayer request time that the arrangements for John have not been finalized yet, but it's looking like tomorrow that they may make the final arrangements. But it's a possibility to be Friday afternoon at 4 o'clock in Evansville and possibly at Colbert Avenue Baptist Church. When, as for John and I first met, as for he was attending now that he left here, you may remember he was not comfortable driving from Evansville to Oklahoma City. It really tore him up when he left uh, Crossroads to go back to Culver. Uh, that's where he was most recently going to church. And uh, I think the Rangers are probably going to be there for Friday afternoon. Maybe we'll find out some things more particularly to that on tomorrow afternoon. But uh, if I get anything about it, I'll pass the word along to you. All right? But today, we're going to turn to the Gospel of John. We're going to look into the fourth chapter as we start a new series by referring to specific, specific passages within the Gospel of John. And the series that we're starting today is eventually going to lead us into a series talking about the I Am statements that John records that Jesus made throughout his Gospel. So with that then, we turn the first week to the fourth chapter. And the fourth chapter, John, as you hear the story in a little bit, is probably one that you're familiar with. It involves living water and the quenching of thirst. And in my opinion, it is, even though it's not an I am statement, it's not written in the fourth chapter, it is really kind of an introduction to leading into the I am statements that we'll find that John does record that Jesus makes throughout his gospel. In fact, John does record seven different I am statements written throughout his, his gospel. They are as follows. In John chapter 6, we'll get that next week probably, it says, I am the bread of life. Is followed in chapter 10 or chapter 8 by I am the light of the world. In chapter 10, there's two different instances where he says I am, but referring to the fact that I am the gate or the door. I am the good shepherd also. And in chapter 11, we'll see the wording of I am the resurrection and the life. Of course, one we're very familiar with in chapter 14. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then finally, chapter 15, John records in his gospel, I am the true vine, words spoken by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I am. So again, the I am wording is not necessarily in chapter 4, but that does not diminish, diminish at all the powerful words that we find within this chapter. As the text clearly states that Jesus is the living water of eternal life. In fact, as you go back and look at it, we're going to just a moment to dissect it. In verse 14, it's almost like he just stops short of saying I am. It's like it says everything except the words I am. Chapter uh, 4, verse 14 says, Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. It's just like he stops short of saying I am the source that could quench your thirst. But chapter 4, verse 14 is not the only verse we have for consideration today. We're going to look at the entire text. Now, chapter 4 is a long chapter. It's 42 verses in this entirety. We don't have time to go through all 42 verses because I know you're going to be hungry. The food's already back there. So we're going to do all 42 verses. But what we will do is look at the first 15 verses of this chapter because the chapter leads us within the first 15 verses. We can discern from the first 15 that Jesus is the source to quench our thirst 
and living water we need eternally. So stand with me this morning, if you're able to, as we simply stand to honor the reading of the Word. Again, we are landing in the fourth chapter of the Gospel of John. We're going to read together the first 15 verses of this chapter. Here's the words that John records, and the words you'll find in red of our Lord and Savior. John chapter 4, verse 1. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, that been John the Baptist, although Jesus himself was not, did not baptize but only disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Well, verse 9, the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. But Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give him a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get the living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from himself as did his sons and his livestock. In verse 13, Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water going up to eternal life. In verse 15, the woman said to Jesus, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Father, Lord, we thank you for the reading of the word today, Lord. We certainly ask for a blessing to be upon it. As we gather here today, Lord, we want to receive this message, receive the text, understand it, yes, but see how it can apply to us. As all of us here today, Lord, have a quench. We have a thirst. We want that thirst to be quenched, Lord. We want it to be satisfied. And today, Lord, we recognize that the only way truly for us to have our thirst to be quenched is the fact that we must receive Jesus in our life. So Lord, with that then, I just pray that you lead and guide and direct us. There'll be one here today, Lord, who has never received you in their life. Perhaps today, Lord, will be that day. So let your spirit lead and guide and direct us at this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. But if you've ever read through the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you may have come to John eventually, because it's the fourth in series as you get into the New Testament, and you may have found that it is unique and very different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In fact, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are often referred to and called the Synoptic Gospels because they have a lot of similarities. But when you get into John, you find it's really different than at least the Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And then throughout John's Gospel, you find that he intentionally offers qualities and aspects of Jesus in his ministry. And in this chapter we find today, chapter 4, we surely find one of those unique attributes. 
So with that, then go back to the beginning of the text in verse 1, and we begin to unfold and begin to see some things that John is letting us know. John first informs us, as you go back to verses 1 through 5, that Jesus is leaving Judea to head to Galilee. And it happens then to go from Judea to Galilee, you must go through Samaria. Now, John's just not merely telling us information about you know, where Jesus is going. I mean, it's an integral, very important part of the text that's written here. I mean, he's not merely letting us know about the route, but he's really setting up the issue, which will come later then, and quite rapidly after verse 5, that Jews have with Samaritans. Now, it doesn't tell us that within the first five verses, but you get to verse 9 and you quickly discern, because it just points it out to us, that they have an issue with each other. It tells you in verse 9, simply at the end, that Jews have no dealing with Samaritans. So we stop there for a minute and begin to ask why. I mean, the good question to ask is why, why do the Jews do not have any dealings, anything to do with the Samaritans? Because if you look at it, I mean, if you process it in your mind, you're thinking, well, this can't be true. I mean, it seems like this might be a form of bigotry or racism or maybe even prejudice. And perhaps it is a form of prejudice. But we need to dig deeper to understand why it exists. And to understand them, we must recognize Samaria. i got a map I want to show you. If Isaac can bring it up for you. You see that Samaria, where Jesus is going to Galilee, he's in Judea, and he must go through Samaria. I mean, Samaria is in the middle of Israel. In that particular time, Judea was in the south. He's going to the north. He's going to Galilee. He must go through Samaria. And in the region of Samaria then, in the Old Testament at least, was the land of the northern kingdom, which is populated then by ten tribes of Israel. The northern kingdom, again, is back to the Old Testament. And with that then, recall that the Old Testament tells us there were originally twelve tribes of Israel. But after the death of Solomon, a split occurred in the land. There was then the northern kingdom, comprising ten tribes, and there was then the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom followed the leadership of Jeroboam. The southern kingdom followed the leadership of Rehoboam. For the record, the southern kingdom had two tribes, Benjamin and Judah. All the rest of the tribes are northern kingdom. But back to the Samaritans then. And to compare them then to the Jews, it is found then that they regarded only the Pentateuch, the books of Moses, the first five books of the Bible, they only regarded that as divine. And further, they did not follow the religious pattern of worship established by the Jews. Now, as much as that then may have created the conflict between the Jews and the Samaritans, the real rub was that years later, again, back to the Old Testament, when the Samaritans were forced by the Assyrians from the region, they had to go south. But they had to go into the southern kingdom. They had to go into Judea, which then resulted in the Jews and the Samaritans living amongst each other. So you then have kind of a mixed blood race that developed. And each of them hated each other. They became the worst enemy is how they viewed each other. And the hatred was so intense that after the exile, and they went back to their homeland, upon rebuilding of the temple, the Jews refused to allow the Samaritans to enter the temple and to participate in worship. All this recorded in the book of Ezra in the Old Testament. 
So that's festered over the years. To the point where, oh, fast forward all the way to the time of the Lord, walking through Samaria, the woman recognizes that it's still a pattern, it's still established, but they have no dealings with each other. They despise each other still after all these years. I mean, so much, I guess, for what the Lord had written and said in Matthew 29, 22-39, to love your neighbors yourself. They did not. But with that then, as understanding now why the Jews and the Samaritans have no dealings with each other, we go back to the text. We find John gives us even more information. Verses 5-6, through six, notice then, again, he came to a town. He's traveling along. He went to Judea. He's going into Samaria. It says in verse 5, he comes to a town called Sychar. Near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Verse 6 also records, very important, that Jacob's well was there. Jesus, weary from his journey naturally, was sitting beside the well. And he ends that verse with another piece of vital information. It was about the sixth hour. Now, in modern day, Sychar is not readily identified. There are actually many who suggest and associate with Shechem. But that is not certain and kind of unsubstantiated. The best we can say about Sychar is that it was on the road that Jesus was traveling from Jerusalem to Galilee as he went through Samaria. And we can also add the piece of information we need to know about Sychar is it must have been the source of water in the rounded area. You had to go to Sychar, you're going to get some water, you're going to go to Jacob's well. By the way, in verse 11, which we're not to yet, we'll come back to after a while, refers to the well as deep. Archaeologists have found then over the years that most of the wells at that particular time could have been 100 to 150 feet deep. And then they were made of the curbstone around the well, which allow for protection and also a resting point. But as we learn that, go back and see that it is about the sixth hour. John just does not put that in there for merely just telling us that it's around noon. He puts it in there because it's vital information. The sixth hour, with the daytime starting at daybreak, would have been about noon. Not precisely, not exactly, but close to noon. If the sun comes up at six, it's around the sixth hour, it's noon. Now, Jesus didn't have him travel for a while if he left early in the day, which he probably did. If he's already made it from Jerusalem to Samaria, yeah, he would have been tired. He would have been thirsty. That's understandable. I mean, he's weary from his journey, as it tells in the text. And we're traveling on foot, dusty roads. It certainly is understandable. They've been tired. He's been thirsty, looking for something to drink. I don't know what it is if you've ever been the thirstiest you've ever been. I do recall the time I was the most thirsty. It happened many years ago when I was living in Texas. A group of guys I used to work with went to go turkey hunting. We left Mount Pleasant, Texas, on the east side of Texas where I was living, and traveled to the western part of the panhandle in Texas. As we were there, we started turkey hunting. It got a little warm. It got a little hot. And when I turkey hunt, I walk around a lot. When I deer hunt, I sit in a tree stand. When I turkey hunt, I walk around a lot. And a couple of the guys with me walk around, do some calling, cold calling, look, trying to find some turkeys, come to you. But... It was getting warmer, it was getting hotter, and I realized, I was walking around, I forgot to bring my water. I forgot to bring my drink. So after a couple hours, maybe three hours, I'm walking around thinking, dude, I'm getting thirsty. I mean, I'm, I, I really need something. I'm parched, I'm hot, I'm tired, I'm thirsty. So I walk around a little further, 
and we eventually come to some of the guys who we're hunting with. They brought his truck up there. And I'm thinking, when the truck came to me, I'm thinking, you got to have something to drink, right? Give me something to drink. I'm parched. I'm ready to receive something. They did not have a diet Mountain Dew. What they had was diet root beer. I cannot stand diet root beer. I don't like root beer, let alone diet root beer. But I'm telling you, when they when they drove up there, I'm so hot, I'm so tired, I'm so thirsty. That diet root beer like the best thing I ever had. Because it was cold, it was wet, and it really wasn't good, but it satisfied me at the moment. Let me say it quenched my thirst. But to that day, to even to the day, I still have never had another diet root beer. Because there's only one drink. You got it. Diet Mountain Dew. That's all we need. Suffice it to say, I never went hunting again without a water or a Diet Mountain Dew. But that's the thirstiest I've ever been in my life. So it's understandable then that when you are traveling, when you are tired and it's hot and it's miserable and all these things are happening, it's understandable how a physical thirst it just happens. We've all had in our life at some moment, a time of physical thirst. And maybe Jesus then walking up to the well, stopping for a moment, had a physical thirst. But that's not really why he was there. He was really there for the quenching of this woman's spiritual thirst. I mean, it's one thing to have a physical thirst and to get it satisfied, but it's yet another, a whole other source, in fact, to get your spiritual thirst. Satisfied and quenched. So you see from the text, and it's happening not by accident, that a Samaritan woman in verse 7, as Jesus stopped, perhaps weary, maybe wanting some physical thirst, we know maybe not completely why he stopped. He's, a Samaritan woman in verse 7 comes along to draw some water, presumably to quench her physical thirst. Again, note the time. In verse 6, it told us at the end of the verse, it was approximately the sixth hour. We call it noon. And that's important because the women, the women would be the ones to go draw the water from the well at a very early part of the day, typically, when it was cool. They did not go at noon, the sixth hour. It had been one of the first things they did when they got up in the morning. Another interesting notation then about the time that she's drawing water from the well, again, to be noon, is the fact we're going to learn later that she's a bit of an outcast. So she's viewed, though, not acceptable to the other women. It tells in verse 16, later you find that she's not have one, not two, not three, not even four, but five husbands. So she's coming later towards the noon hour when women typically don't go to the well to draw water and possibly because she's an outcast from all the other people, especially the women. But then this entire very specific recounting event is setting this up for something special, which is recognizable then, because Jesus resting at the well with the woman come up to all of a sudden to draw water at noon while he's there. He says, Jesus says to her in verse 7, give me a drink. Jesus is sitting at the well. The disciples are nowhere around. It's just a man and a woman walks up, all of a sudden, unexpectedly, a Samaritan woman, and Jesus says to her, 
give me a drink. Well, look in verse 9, the woman's reaction, she's a bit baffled by it all. I mean, she said to him, not knowing who he is, how is it that you, a Jew, asking for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? The woman knows exactly what's happened. A person reading the text for the first time can't understand what, why she's reacting this way. But the woman's response is indicative of double no-no that Jesus had just committed. Number one, he spoke. As a Jewish man, he spoke to a Samaritan, of which they have no dealings. We've already learned that part of the text. And number two, a Jewish man just spoke to a woman. Jewish men seldom spoke to a woman and acknowledged her, let alone a Samaritan woman. The commentary says, Jesus' request for a drink from her is a break in tradition for several reasons in that day and time. Number one, men did not generally talk to women in public. Number two, rabbis did not talk to women. And thirdly, Jews did not talk to Samaritans. So the woman has to be shocked. First of all, that she comes up there at noon, sees a man sitting there, and then thirdly, that he actually, Jew, responds to her. She has to be shocked about the happening. But this is Jesus. And Jesus was not about upholding tradition, but doing all he wanted the Father's will. He was all about doing the Father's will. And the text is certainly reveals an important aspect of his ministry. I mean, he prepares to convey to the woman. It's not done yet. He prepares to convey to this woman, a Samaritan woman, that he is the living water. And then it gives us then our first point for this morning, which perhaps we realize, but make it known anyway, that God is not limited to one location, nor does he identify with only one nation or one people group. We could also add that God is not limited. He does not die for just an elite class. Not to one race, not to one gender. I mean, Jesus did not come to the cross and take the sin of, of an elite class or an exclusive group. He did it for all mankind, every man, every woman, every child. God is the creator of all mankind. And he loves all people as his children who come to accept his son. And what that means then, very simply, is that God shows no favoritism. I mean, Israel surely is the chosen nation. But all people, nations, tribes are included in the kingdom. Paul, the Apostle Paul, made this abundantly clear in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. He said, there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There is no male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. A little bit later on in Revelation, in chapter 7, verse 9, John recorded as he stranded in Patmos, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could number, of all nations, tribe, people, languages, all standing before the throne and before the Lamb. We're all standing before the throne. Every child, every nation, Every person who accepts Jesus Christ is not based upon a gender. It's not based upon a race. It's not to an exclusive group. It is not to the elite. The truth is Jesus came for all people. He came to save the world. It's recorded in John 3, 16 and 17. 
and it's true for every Gentile and for every Jew. Even to the Jews' despised group of Samaritans, it is true. It's an important truth that we should be duly noting. Especially when there seems to be that little problem that exists in the text as John is writing this with that little prejudice. Again, look back to verses 7 through 9 and make sure you see what's happening. This is unique. There's something special happening. He's making a point. He's not going with tradition. Jesus bucking tradition and then going with the will of God. Notice in verses 7 through 9, recognize this is a woman. She was a Samaritan, a member of the hated mixed race. She was known later, we find out, to be living in sin. And it was in a public place. The fact is that no respectable Jewish man would talk to a woman under such circumstances. But Jesus did. What demonstrates for us and what that means is this. First, the good news, the gospel, is available for every person, no matter what his or her race, social position, or past sin. John 3.16, you know well, that God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever should believe in him should not perish, but have what? Everlasting life. Jesus came for every man, woman, and child, for every person. And secondly, it also means we, we, as Christians, we as believers, must be prepared to share the good news at any time and in any place. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for reason of the hope that is in you. We are blessed to live where we do. We don't have to go to church to share the gospel. You can go to Walmart. You can go to a baseball game. Wherever you are, it's available every place, everywhere to share the gospel, the good news. And thirdly, it means this. Jesus crossed all barriers to share that vital information, the good news, the gospel. And we must do exactly no less. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. says, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Of course, Matthew 28, 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Jesus came not for an exclusive group, not for an elite class, he came for all men, women, and children. He's bucking tradition, and here in the Gospel of John, the fourth chapter, we make that fact be known. But in back to the story. After Jesus now has asked the woman, a Samaritan woman nonetheless, for a drink, and woman responds to verse 9, Jesus gives her, in verse 10, the most powerful truths the woman needs to hear, that anyone needs to hear. Look at verse 10. She, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Note the end of the verse. He's given her what? Living water. What an interesting response he's given to her. I mean, she's perplexed about what's going on. She's trying to go over the fact that a Jewish man's actually talking to her. He asks for a drink. She don't know how he's going to get it because he can have her living water. But he turns the table. 
I mean, it's an interesting response he gives her because he actually turns the table. Remember, at the beginning of the conversation, Jesus is the one who is thirsty. And the woman has a source to quench his thirst. She's at the well. The water's in it. Now, Jesus then talks to her about the fact that she is thirsty and that he has the source to quench her thirst. So, in a subtle way, notice how the conversation has gone from the physical thirst to the spiritual thirst. And Jesus tells her then he can quench her thirst because he can give her living water. He can satisfy her spiritual need her thirst, her desire, because he is the living water. The question maybe we need to ask ourselves at this juncture is, do we have the living water? And maybe before, set that aside for now, maybe before we actually answer the question, we need to note the woman's reaction. Because maybe our reaction has been or is of the same. In verse 11, after Jesus says, he would have given her living water. The woman said to him, again confused, so you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than the father of Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it as if his sons and his livestock. Notice of her response, she don't get it. She just doesn't get what Jesus is trying to tell her. I mean, it's like zoom, went right over her head. She's still thinking of physical water. I mean, she just doesn't get the message. Almost like in John chapter 3, when Nicodemus secretly goes to meet Jesus. And Jesus shares to him that he must be born again. He don't get it. They've missed it. But Jesus, in classic fashion, he don't stop. He continues, verse 13. He said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. I mean, he, he knows she's talking about the physical thirst still. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him or her will become in him or her a spring of water willing up to eternal life. Well, I don't know if she completely understood, but she begins to gain interest. Verse 15, woman said to him then, Sir, give me this water. So that I will never not be thirsty or have any to come here to draw water again. I mean, note that the woman now shows interest in what Jesus is offering. And perhaps again, she's not aware maybe of the fact of the spiritual truth that he's sharing with her. I mean, maybe she's still thinking of having physical water, merely tangible water to quench her physical thirst. Maybe she's still thinking about it. But as the account continues, all the way through the end of the chapter in verse 42, we're given insight that she does learn that Jesus is the Messiah. She does learn that he is the Savior of the world. Jump all the way down chapter 4 to verse 25 because she begins to question, she begins to recognize that there is a Messiah coming. There is someone coming that they heard who knows will be the Lord, the Messiah. She knows of that. But he tells her then, a Samaritan woman in verse 26, when she knows it's coming, she knows the possibility exists. In verse 26, he simply tells her, I who speak to you am he. She essentially learns that Jesus is standing in front of her. 
and provides then a second point of application that only Jesus, she learns that only Jesus is the living water that can quench the thirst that all mankind yearns for. She learns that only Jesus can quench her thirst. She now recognizes her spiritual thirst, her desire is standing in front of her. Commentary I was reading said, How exciting to see faith grow right before our eyes as a woman's concept of Jesus changes from seeing him as a weary traveling Jew in verse 9, then as a prophet in verse 19, and then finally as Christ the Messiah. All this transpires with only a few moments of conversation. How significant! It is that Jesus reveals himself so forthrightly to a woman of such questionable reputation. She had deep needs, and he, Jesus, of course, had the power to meet them. The commentary provides a question that maybe we need to ask ourselves this morning. Are we here this morning with these deep needs? Do we have needs as well? Do we have a, a, a thirst? that needs to be quenched? Do we have a spiritual thirst that we are still searching to be quenched for? I mean, we ask again, have you received the living water? Because only Jesus can meet your needs. Only Jesus can quench the thirst that you long for and satisfy it completely. It's only Jesus who can actually satisfy and quench your spiritual thirst. I got a bottle of water in front of me and want to drink in just a moment because I'm starting to get thirsty. But that's not what we need. We need our spiritual thirst to be quenched. We need it to be satisfied, and it's going to only come through Jesus, our Lord and Savior. You have deep needs that need to be met, that need to be satisfied. Recognize it's only Jesus who can satisfy you who can give you that living water. talked earlier about how it's been a difficult week. I can stand before you and you, as much as I'm going to miss John Elpers, I can rejoice knowing that he had his spiritual thirst quenched. He had it satisfied. Last year was very difficult for all of us. About the same time, a little bit earlier, we lost one integral part to this church, Ray Goldie. I can stand in front of you assured that, that you know that she also had her spiritual thirst quenched. She had deep needs. We all come to the Lord at some point having deep needs. Ray, John, anybody you may know who's a Christian believer, they've had deep needs in their life. And they there's only one source to quench and satisfy that thirst and meet their need. And it's only Jesus. Every time it's only Jesus. So when someone we love, like John or Ray or anyone else, we really truly miss in this life, when they depart from us and we know that they received Jesus and they had their spiritual thirst quenched, we can stand back and rejoice. We can have sadness because we won't see them anymore, at least in this life. But we know we can rejoice in the fact that they've met, they've had that thirst, they've been quenched in life. They've had their needs to be met. No, they weren't always saints. There was a time in their lives they probably were like the Samaritan woman. 
but they recognize, like the Samaritan woman also, that they eventually recognize their thirst would never be quenched without Jesus. So again, the question for us today, are you here this morning with deep needs? Do you have a spiritual thirst that has not been quenched? Have you received living water? But Jesus doesn't say, I am here. But Jesus is the source to quench your spiritual thirst. Come to him and you shall never thirst again. Father, we thank you, Lord, for this message today. We thank you for this passage. It reveals great, valuable insight for all of us to recognize and to receive in our life. Lord, we all recognize how things happen in life. Life sometimes gets in the way. And we have these needs that, well, for some of us, goes unfulfilled. We have desires that sometimes are never satisfied. We have the thirst that's never quenched. So today, Lord, we just put all that aside and recognize that it's about the spiritual. It's about the, the life after. And we know then by putting our faith and trust in you that we can have the eternal living waters you offer us and live forever eternally with you. The everlasting life is talked about. Lord, I pray for every man, every woman, every child here today to recognize there is a source to give them living water. And that only your son is only Jesus. I pray again, as I did earlier, that anybody here today has never received Jesus in their heart, in their life, they would make that decision to do so today, commit themselves to you, to have their thirst to be quenched. Thank you for this message today, Lord. Thank you for the truth reveals to us. And thank you for going to the cross for each of us. In your name we pray. Amen.